where we left off last week was Ruth chapter 2 and verse 14. And let me just put it in context. Ruth went out to, to gather, uh, to gather wheat and she, she found her way. It says uh, her chance chanced was the exact terminology how she came into the, the land there that happened to be the field of Boaz. She didn't know that he was a near kinsman, but it turns out he was. And then he had heard about her and he opened up special provision for her. And here she is still working her first day in that field. And so we'll pick it up in Luke, I'm sorry, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she ate I'm sorry, so she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left over. And she arose to glean, as she arose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what, what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man... The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness toward the living and to the dead. And again Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Okay, so um, Boaz, as they're eating, Boaz actually had invited Ruth to be a part of his own group of workers as they ate. And it says that, that uh, uh, he had invited her and he says, come here and dip your bread in this vinegar. So he's actually allowing her to partake with them of their meal. That was not a provision that was given to the poor when they were, the, when they were allowed to gather after the reapers had already gone through. But he was giving her special provision. And then it says he served to her some roasted grain. And she ate it, and she was satisfied. So in other words, until she was full, she ate. And she had some left over. So he had put so much on her plate that she had some left over. And then it says, When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. So Boaz, again, was making special provision. Remember what we had seen last time, had Boaz, up in verse 4, he came uh, into, the, into his fields, and he says to his reapers, May the Lord bless you, in verse 4. And they reply to him, May the Lord bless you. So he blesses them, the Lord be with you. They bless them back and say, The Lord bless you. We talked about how we establish the tenor. We establish the tone within the workplace. We as believers can do that. If we use foul language, others will use foul language. If we refrain from it, others will come generally under conformity to 
to what we set. You set a right pattern and it'll be set. And Boaz warns his servants. He says, yeah, this is a, a poor woman here who's, who's uh, been given provision to glean here, but I don't want you to insult her. He set the tone for the workplace. I mean, these are just you know, common workmen. And this is an unmarried woman. She's a widow. She's a foreigner. So she's in a place where she could normally be abused. And he says, you watch out for her. You don't insult her. He guarded her. And the other thing that's interesting here is he fed her especially. He took care of her and fed her. This is a good practice to do. It says in Proverbs 19, verse 17. In Proverbs 19, verse 17, let me read that to you. There's a a little verse about feeding others. Proverbs 19, verse 17, it says, One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. If we are gracious to others, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. It is like lending to God. That's a pretty good thing. Don't you want to lend to God? You need something? Sure. You can have my whole wallet, God. He who is gracious to a poor person is lending to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. There is great reward. This man, there there was this, this woman who had come, and he had gave her special provision. Earlier on in the chapter, he said, if you're thirsty, you drink the same water that my own workers drink. You're welcome to it. And now he himself serves her. He himself makes sure that she is served and he invites her to dip her bread into the vinegar. This is like the, the, the supper that we will take with the Lord in heaven. It says the Lord himself will serve us. I mean, it's an amazing picture that the Lord himself is going to serve us in, the, in this feast in heaven. And here he's serving her until she was satisfied and she had some left over. To learn to give so much that people can take something with them is actually a good and a godly practice. It is a good thing. One day you will have homes. Use your homes for the ministry of the Lord and learn how to prepare meals for others. This is a good thing to do. Think about this practice. And what you do is you begin to think about this. Remember, most people aim at nothing and they hit it every time. We are to aim specifically at something. You, you think about what you're going to do in life. You're going to have a home. And even if you live in a dormitory room or some room in your college right now, you can still invite people in and serve them something. You get a coffee machine and serve them coffee. Or you get chocolates. You serve them something. You do this. You begin to do this. And you will reap great benefits. This is a godly and a good thing to do. And then it says that, that she, she went on and she worked that day. And in verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley, about 30 pounds, about 22 liters from what I've read. So this is a lot of, uh, of food that she was able to gather, much more than a person would have been able to normally gather just by going and, and, and going after the reapers, being a poor person. But remember what had happened is Boaz made special provision for her. He said in verse 16 that that, uh, uh, you're to pull some of the grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean. So in other words, just drop some intentionally on the ground so that she comes through. That uh, uh, she's allowed to take it. And in fact, 
he's letting her actually then do her gleaning among the, his own workers, which was not normal. Usually after the workers had already gone through and cleaned the field as much as they want, had already gone through their first pass, then the others could come through. He made special provision for her. And why is he doing this? He had told us back up in verse 11. He says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that did not previous, you did not previously know. May the Lord reward you reward your work and may your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. She came under the wings of the God of Israel. And Boaz proclaims over her, may the Lord bless you, may your wages be full. And so Boaz himself is fulfilling that prayer. Boaz himself is fulfilling that. If you will walk in God's ways, He will bless you. Remember Psalm 16 verse 5. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. You have supported my lot. You come under the wings of the God of Israel. And God will support you and He will bless you. We get much more than we deserve when we come under the wings of the God of Israel. He says you left your father and your mother. You left your home and you came. And in your coming you have set yourself under the God of Israel. If you would learn to do this, if you would learn to pick up this word and meditate on it, if you would learn to participate in the body of Christ, look what, he, what he's doing. He's saying to her, you stay here among my people. He said, you stay here and glean. He says, you don't have to go any other place. You stay right here and glean. I'll take care of you. This is what the body of Christ has for her, has for us, just like he did for her. And he, and he encouraged her to do this. In verse, uh, um, in, in verse 13, she recognizes, she says, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to one of your maidservants. And then look in, in, verse, um, in verse 18, it says that when she went into the city to see her mother-in-law, she took out and she gave Naomi what was left over after she had been satisfied. So remember this roasted grain he gave her so much? She brought it home and shared it with Naomi. So she saved Naomi the shame of having to go and to go like a poor person in and gather. And remember, it was to glean and gather. And this was Ruth's idea. Ruth said, let me do this. And Naomi said, thank you, go. And now Ruth comes and she brings this and then in verse 19, her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean, in verse 19, where did you glean today and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. She knew that if she was coming with 30 pounds of grain, 30 pounds of wheat, that somebody must have really made special provision for her. No one person could have gotten that much if they were just going up and picking up the scraps after what was left over. She said, whoever did this for you, let him be greatly blessed. And so, so this is exactly what happened. So she says that the man's name was Boaz. And then verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. Kindness to the living and kindness to the dead. And you think about that. 
What is an act of kindness to the dead? I can understand an act of kindness to the living. What is an act of kindness to the dead? Well, let's see Jesus' view of the dead. Let's turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Some of the most powerful words in Scripture. In John chapter 11. And this is what I share with people when, when, uh, when I go to a funeral of those who have known the Lord. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You see, Jesus himself asks, do you believe this? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? This is an absolute, tremendous hope we have. Tremendous hope. Jesus said, the people can live forever. If you know Him, you live forever. A believer may be in the grave, but so often, especially in the New Testament, it speaks of believer's death, not as death, but as being asleep. It speaks of the unbeliever as having died. Not, not, so, sometimes it speaks of the believer's died, but sometimes it says the believers are asleep. This term... Asleep was reserved exclusively for the believer in the New Testament. But Jesus says, even if he dies, if he knows me, he lives. And he says, do you believe this? Jesus spoke again and again as if those who passed on were very much alive. This will be a treasure to you someday. Someday, someone very dear to you is going to pass on. And you remember this verse. That he who lives and believes in me shall live even if he dies. They say that President Lincoln could not come out of depression when his, his child died. Could not come out of depression. And one pastor went and visited the White House and he turned to him and he said this very thing. Your son is alive. And that snapped President Lincoln out of this state of depression. This word, this truth, that the dead in Christ live. He says they will never die. They will never die. So in other words, when someone has passed on, they are still very much alive. The the body may be in the ground, but the spirit is very much alive with God. Very much alive. It does not die. And then one day God will raise up the body as well. Look in Luke chapter 1. Again, look at the ways that Jesus spoke of believers and life and death. Luke chapter chapter uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter sixteen. Luke chapter sixteen. And we're going to read this story of Lazarus and the rich man. Luke, Luke chapter sixteen, verse nineteen. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. 
And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they may not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus spoke very much as if people after death had consciousness and were alive and were speaking. This is no joke with the Lord. This is the way He spoke. What's interesting is, so this this poor man, it says, was in Abraham's bosom. He was in a place of comfort. This is actually where Jesus came and took them captive and and liberated them after uh, after His death. But anyway, it says that, that uh, uh, this, poor ma- th- this rich man who was in torment cried out. And he says, he, says uh, he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus in his bosom. And he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. So again, this man who didn't know God is very much aware, but he's in a place of torment. And he says, send Lazarus to bring me water. Again, he's giving orders for the poor man to do something for him. But look what Abraham says in verse 25. Abraham doesn't say, well, you scoundrel, you heathen, you unbeliever. He looks down at him and he says, my child, my child. Gives us a picture what God thinks, even of the unbeliever in hell. He's still looking at them with compassion. And he says, my child, I can't come to you. And then he says, okay, well then go send Lazarus to speak to my brothers because if somebody comes back from the dead, and he says, no, they won't believe even when somebody comes back from the dead. And they didn't believe the Lord. But look how he spoke. He spoke very much as if they were alive. Look in Mark chapter 12. Another passage. Mark chapter 12. Jesus again speaks of people that have passed on. Mark chapter, chapter 12. So if this were not true, he would not be speaking like this. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife 
and raised up the child to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no child. The second one married her and died, leaving no children. And the third likewise, and so all seven left no child, and last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection then, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. So this is an interesting situation. This actually gets back to what we were talking about in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, Boaz, being a near kinsman, is going to have an obligation to marry Ruth. But in fact, in, in, the, in the Mosaic Law, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it says it is the brother's job to marry. But there was no other brother, because remember, uh, Naomi's two sons died. But never was, the, was there an obligation for any other kinsman to marry. It was specifically said a brother, a brother-in-law, I'm sorry, brother-in-law had to marry this woman. But when it came to the redemption of land in the book of Leviticus 25, it talks about in the redemption of land that a near kinsman, a relative, could redeem the land. And that's what Boaz was going to do. And by extrapolation, he was going to fulfill this role of of marrying Ruth as well, which he didn't have to by the Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law was very specific. It had to do with a brother-in-law. So this is what they're quoting. And they said a, woman die, a, a, a man died, left a woman, and went through the seven brothers like this. And can you imagine being like the fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh brother? You're like, I want to marry her. Everybody who marries her dies. But, I mean, think about that, right? But, but anyway, so they put this scenario before Jesus. And look what Jesus says. He doesn't say, look, you know, you guys don't understand death and everything. He explains it in a very different way. He explains it as if these people are living. But look what he says. He says in verse verse, uh, 24, Jesus says to them, "It is Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Look what Jesus says. He says, God is the God of the living. He says says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived long before Moses, and it died long before Moses had ever been born. Remember that um, Jacob came and the the Israelites were 400 years in Israel before Moses was ready to deliver them. So you've got periods of hundreds of years here. And God says He's God of the living. Jesus says the Father is God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are very much alive. They're in heaven alive. This is what he tells them concerning the resurrection. They're very much alive. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is critical that we understand this concerning our faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reading from verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So look what he says is the most important thing. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing that he has to share. This is the most important thing. The first most important thing is the resurrection. That Christ died for our sins, he was buried and he was raised. You want to know what the most important thing of our faith is? It is the resurrection. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says in in verse 2, by this you are saved. This is essential. You can believe whatever you want to believe about the creation story, about about, uh, uh, different passages and things, but when it comes to resurrection, this is the basis that our salvation is based upon. You want to believe in demons, you don't want to believe in demons, that's up to you. The Bible doesn't say, unless you believe in demons, you are not saved. It doesn't say that. Jesus spoke of demons as, they were very, as if they were very real. Nevertheless, our salvation is not based upon that. It is based upon this resurrection. This very resurrection. He says, I delivered you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In, verse 15, in, in chapter 15, verse 2, it says, unless you believed in vain. So in other words, there is a belief... It can be a vain belief, meaning that we can believe something, but it doesn't do us any good. He says, there is going to be a belief that does you no good. In verse 4, it says, in, in verse 5, it says, he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So he appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the other twelve. Who were the other twelve? I thought, I thought Judas was already gone. No, remember Matthias. Matthias was chosen and he was a valid apostle. So he appeared to Cephas. And then to the twelve, he, he, he appeared. So, so, so uh, uh, Matthias was one of, one of these twelve. He had replaced Judas. And then he says, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Jesus appeared to them. They could not have been hallucinating because two people do not hallucinate the same thing at the same time. You've got 500 people. They can't all hallucinate that they're seeing Jesus. That doesn't happen. That's not a hallucination. They saw Jesus because he had risen from the dead. He appeared to them physically. He appeared to them physically. The scriptures say that, that we have to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that he's been risen from the dead and we shall be saved. That we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that He's risen from the dead and we shall be saved. You see how it couples this resurrection, it couples the resurrection with salvation. And here He's doing the same thing. And then He appeared in verse 7, He appeared to James and all the apostles, and last of all to one untimely born, He appeared also to me in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 15. For I am the least of the apostles, and I am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by His grace toward me, did not prove, His grace toward me, me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. 
Now, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. If there is no resurrection, Christianity is in vain. Faith is in vain without the resurrection. Our faith is in in vain. In verse 15, Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He was raised. He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. So He's saying here, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So He is saying that indeed, not only Christ has risen, but believers... Believers in Christ, their spirits go, but their body will raise also. You say, how does it happen? I mean, I know a body was all burned up, and another body, you know, was in the ocean and got eaten by fish, and it's all chopped up now. How's he going to break? I don't know. However, he did it the first time. Look at yourself. Where'd you come from? He brought molecules together from diverse places, and there you are. He did it once before, and he'll do it again. And the atoms that make you up never go away. They're still there. He'll bring them together again. He can do it. He did it before. He'll do it again. The resurrection, the truth of the resurrection. He says that your faith is worthless without the resurrection. So when people say, you know, this person's, I think they're a Christian. I'm not sure though. What do you think? You think they're a Christian? I say, I don't know. I'll find out. And, and, uh, and, and I go and I talk with them. And I've done it with many of my colleagues at work. You know, I met with one colleague at work once, and he was a chemist, and, and, I, and I took him out for dinner and, and for lunch, and, and, I, and I asked him, because I knew that he, he taught Sunday school in, in, in a local church. And I said, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? He says, the physical resurrection? No. He says, you know, when, when people die, they, they just change frequency. You know, if that's not a chemist's answer, I mean... They change frequency. And this guy's a Sunday school teacher. You don't believe in the physical resurrection. Well, about two years later, this guy, being a very old gentleman, was near death. And, and uh, uh, very weak at that point, and he had to use one of these electric uh, scooters and everything. And I met with him again, knowing that he couldn't be living that much longer. And I met with him again for lunch, and we couldn't even go to the faculty club. We had lunch right there in the building because he couldn't go very far. And as we're eating, I said, you know, I shared with you a while back, a few years ago, about the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me show you some verses from the Scriptures. And I showed him these very verses. And he said to me, he said, I can believe that. He says, you know, you know there, there really is only one data point here. You know, he's a chemist. He wants multiple data points. I said, yeah, I understand what you're talking about. Jesus was pretty unique. He rose from the dead. We don't have a whole lot of data points. That's what made it miraculous. He says, but okay, I can believe that for Jesus. Well, a month later, the guy had gone on to be with the Lord. You know, very simple things. I met with a, a, another professor and I, and I asked him, do you believe in the, in, in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? He says, oh no. I said, well, what raised up? He says, oh, you, you know, resurrections don't mean much. You, you know, they're... they're it's like a ghost, you know, you turn on the light and you see there is no ghost and it's all your imagination. He says what's really important is, is, is uh, um, just the sense of the resurrection. He said, but that's not what the scriptures say. 
You can talk about all you like, but that's not what the scriptures say. I met with, uh, with another professor, and, and uh, I asked him, as soon as we sat down, I said, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? And he was a religion professor, and, and uh, he says, no, no, not the physical resurrection. And I said, okay, tell me your story. And uh, tell me how, how, how you, know, you came into your Christian faith because you say you're a Christian. He, he says, well, I, I started out a, a Baptist evangelist. And he says, I, I went then to Harvard Divinity School. I said, oh, stop right there. Let me guess. You went into Harvard believing in the physical resurrection and you came out not believing. And he sheepishly said, well, I, I guess you could put it that way. But you see what I mean? The truth of the resurrection. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Jesus spoke again and again of people being very much alive even when they were gone. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me shall live even if he dies. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? If the answer is no, according to the Scriptures, you are not saved. You say, well, you're judging me. I'm not judging you at all. I'm saying, according to the Scriptures, it says that. You want to tear out that page from the Scriptures? Fine, tear it out. Take it up with God. But that's what His definition is. It's the physical resurrection. And remember, it says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. He says, if the, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So again, Paul speaks about the dead being raised. And he goes on in this chapter, the order of the resurrection. First Christ was raised, and then believers are raised. There will be a resurrection for all those who are already passed on in Christ. Their spirits are very much with God. And one day, their bodies, it says, will rise up from the tomb and meet their spirits in the air. Only the living generation when Christ returns is going to go directly up. But it says the dead are going to rise first. Their bodies are going to go up and we'd be like, whoa. And then all of a sudden, we're going, we follow them. But they rise first. It's really amazing. God can do this. God does this. And if there is no resurrection... Our faith is in vain and our preaching is in vain. And Jesus spoke again and again. And that's why Naomi says, Bless that man who has remembered the living, remembered to be good to the living and the dead. Because she believed very much that the dead, the dead were very much someone to still be blessed in this way. Because the dead live when they are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of the resurrection. Father, if there be one here who has never considered this before, the truth of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, he who appeared to them, he who ate with them after his resurrection, how they looked upon his hands and upon his feet. How they placed their finger even into the hole in his side. Put their hand into his side. Father, thank you for the truth of that resurrection. Father, I pray for these young people. And particularly for the one 
are those here who have never considered before the truth of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That they would be confronted with your word, the truth of your word, and make a decision based upon that. And Father, I pray that they would make a decision to believe on the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you for the truth of your word, that those who live and believe in you shall live even if they die. Thank you, Father, for that truth. Bless these young people, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.